And so I thought it was so much fun to just go in and really look at this woman who was groundbreaking for her time. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustful, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Georgie Blaylock, author of An Indiscreet Princess. I was sitting around one day and I was reading a romance, a historical romance, and I remember thinking, gosh, I could write one of these. And so I did. Georgie Blaylock is a history and movie buff who loves combining her different passions through historical fiction and a healthy dose of period piece films. When not writing, she can be found prowling the nonfiction history section of the library or the British film listings on Netflix or in the dojo training for her next karate black belt rank. Georgie also writes historical romance under the name Georgie Lee. Today, I'll be talking to her about her novel, An Indiscreet Princess. Let's start with Princess Louise, the indiscreet princess. Uh, who was she and what were the circumstances of her life? So Princess Louise was Queen Victoria's fourth daughter. And she was the most rebellious of all the uh, daughters that Queen Victoria had. So she was artistically gifted, as most of Queen Victoria's children were. But she was able to take her art to another level, um, what for her was as professional a level as she could get to at that time. Because as a royal, she was not allowed to pursue her art in a professional manner. But she was a sculptress, which um, Queen Victoria refers to as a very masculine art. So she it's not her preferred art. She likes it, but she prefers watercolor or painting. But Princess Louise was a very gifted sculptress, and it was something that her father, Prince Albert, had done and had encouraged her to do. And so she had tutors, um, and and she did a lot of sculpture of her family and, and small busts and things like that. And then eventually what happened is she wanted to take her training even further. And so she wanted to attend the National Art Training School, which was part of the South Kensington Museum, which is now the Victorian Albert Museum. And at the time, that was absolutely revolutionary for a, a royal of either gender, actually, to attend a public school. And so after a good deal of convincing, uh, she was allowed to take classes there. And she studied under uh, a man named Joseph Edgar Bohm. And I, I hope I'm saying that correctly. And he was, at the time, an incredibly well-known sculptor. If you go to the, I believe it's the Natural History Museum in London, his sculpture of um, Darwin, 
is there. And he did the sculpture of uh, Lord Holland in Holland Park and a lot of things that you would know of, but that he since faded from view. And I think that's because he, he died prematurely. Um, he was, I think in his, he was 1890 or 91 and he was still fairly young, but also he was, they were both born at a time that was just filled with artistic luminaries. Um, you had John Everett Millay, you had Whistler, Sargent comes on the the scene eventually. And so I think there were so many just legends of art and, and sculpture that it was easy to get lost in the mix. And then his passing away at a, a fairly young age um, sort of meant that he sort of disappeared from, um, from kind of the public consciousness. But uh, Louise, she studied under him, and then there were rumors that they also became lovers. And so the book follows um, not only her life um, it, struggling to become an artist in her own right, uh, her sculpture of Queen Victoria is in Kensington Gardens, so you can go see that there today. If you also go to St. Um, Peter's, uh, she has a monument to... Uh, the soldiers in the Boer War that she sculpted there as well. So there's a lot of stuff of hers that you can find. But she really had to fight to be able to pursue that and to have this different life outside of the traditional one that as a princess and a woman of that time, she also um, had to have. So I'm curious, have you had a chance to uh, see some of those sculptures? Sadly, I have not because I did not get a chance to travel to London um, to do research for this book. However, a lot of them are in the Royal Collection and or the Victoria and Albert, and you can see them online. So that was very helpful, uh, especially since I think a lot of her pieces were lost because in my research, I would come across mentions of certain pieces. If, if you go on the British newspaper archive and you uh, put in a search for her art showings. Um, there'll be a lot, there's a lot of write-ups in the newspapers about art showings that she participated in at various galleries and they'll mention her pieces, but I couldn't find a quite a number of them. Uh, so I think a lot of them have been lost or people just don't realize maybe what they have, but what the Royal Archives and the Victorian Albert and some other places have, the, those things are available online. So that was really helpful because it helped me to take the art and hers and um, Joseph Edgar Bohm's and to work it into the story. So I have the two characters sort of talking to each other sometimes through their artwork. And so it was neat to find pieces that I could then incorporate into the story that, um, that were created by both of them. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a very unique, um, uh, and an effective way to have you know characters communicate that way. Oh well, part of the the thing is is because she's a princess and he's a commoner. You know, nowadays we don't really think that much about royalty marrying commoners, but at the time that was no, you couldn't do it. And even if and she did, she married uh, the the man that she married was the Duke of Argyle's son, but and he was considered a commoner, but he still had the the title and and. The, the lineage, someone as lowly as Joseph Edgar Bohm would never have thought to be able to uh, marry a princess. And so their relationship was something that was very, kept very quiet. So their ability to communicate, it had to be through people or it had to be, you know, through their art, um, especially in the story, because it's, you know, 
we think of royal scandals as something that kind of happens all the time nowadays. And yes, they did happen all the time back then as well, but it was kept very, very quiet. And especially for the the women in the royal family is that whatever they were involved in had to be kept incredibly quiet. And so it, it was fun to be able to have them in the story because of their limited ability to communicate at certain times in her life to have them be able to talk through their art. And, you know, looking at your, your previous work, it's, it's clear that you have uh, an interest in the British Royal family throughout history. Uh, how, how long did you know about the story of princess Louise and, and when did you first decide this is a story I want to tell? I had discovered her. Let's see. It was, it was a couple of years before I actually wrote the story. And I think, it, you know, when you do a lot of reading, um, I'm a, you know, you can't, I always say to people, if you don't love research and you don't love history, historical fiction is definitely not for you. Um, and so I'm always constantly reading nonfiction history books, you know, both for entertainment and looking for new ideas and in the course of my research. And the book that I read across was called Queen Victoria's Mysterious Daughter. And, and it's by Lucinda Hoxley. And it talks about Princess Louise and then her relationship with Bohm. And I, I think because, you know, Queen Victoria had nine children, they, some of them get lost, you know, especially this far away from it. And so it was something I had never really heard about. It was a story I thought was very interesting that I felt just deserved more attention because she was friends with so many luminaries, the pre-Raphaelites and, you know, all these names that if you walk through any art museum, you're going to see their art. And yet her name and connection with them just rarely shows up. And so I thought it was so much fun to just go in and really look at this woman who was groundbreaking for her time. And yet at the same time, conventional because of the situation that she was in and then just seeing how she's able to balance the two. And, and so it was through research that I found it, but I was working on another book at the time. And so, um, they took a couple of years before I got the chance to write this story. And can you talk more about both your fascination with the British Royal family and also just, just the public in general, and even, you know, Americans specifically, why do you think we, we are so interested in that history and in that, in that family? I think part of it is that there's a fantasy element to it. It's that, you know, there's the palace and the jewels and the beautiful dresses and the titles, and there are things that we don't have here, but they fascinate us because I think they talk about, talk to a fairy tale and sort of a happy ever after. But then when you read about all this stuff, you realize it wasn't a fairy tale and very few of these people got happily ever afters because of their titles and their position in the royal family. One of the things in the course of my research is I was very shocked at how different Queen Victoria really was compared to how I thought of her as. Because I think a lot of my impressions of her like many people, comes from films and TV shows and the way she's depicted in in those particular genres. And I think people love to sit down and watch it and there's the, the gowns and the jewels and the palaces and it looks great. But when you really start to read about Queen Victoria, she was far more hard-hearted than I had realized from some of the depictions I had seen of her um, throughout the years. 
is that she's always sort of shown as this sort of grandmother of the empire. And yes, she was that, but she was also where her children were concerned, incredibly indifferent to their difficulties and their troubles, which in a way makes sense. I mean, she was queen. She comes to the throne when she's 18. She has to really work to establish herself, you know, get out from under her mother's thumb and then to kind of set herself up as to set up her power within the structure of the time. And then, you know, she marries Albert and, and she, they have all these children and he was really, Prince Albert was really the more of the, the, not maternal, but the, the more of the loving parent figure because he didn't have the same responsibilities that Queen Victoria had. And then when he died, Queen Victoria, most of the kids were fairly old, except for the youngest. I think she was four, but the rest of them were in their teens just, she just, I don't think she did a really good job of balancing being a mom and being a queen. And I think part of that was because of her personality. And so that kind of conflict between our popular image of her as a queen and how she was as a mom, which is, was fascinating to read through all her journals and letters because she was a prolific journal keeper and a prolific letter writer. And include, in fact, I include a lot of her like quotes from her letters in the novel because Part of me felt that people may not believe this version of Queen Victoria that I'm writing. They may not think it's real, but it it was real. She was not, she wasn't the worst mom, but she definitely wasn't the best. And so I think the fascination with them is, is just, it's something so different than what we have, but it also has that fairy tale aspect of it. Well, I'm speaking as someone who has watched and enjoyed The Crown, and mm-hmm. you know that that what you just described reminds me very much of uh, Queen Elizabeth as she's portrayed in The Crown. And you know, Queen comes before family, and that kind yes. of alienates her from some of her children. I'm curious: um, Do you think the women in the British royal family, whether it's Margaret or Louise or Victoria or Elizabeth, are the challenges they face, even though they are sort of higher than life, are they emblematic of the challenges women um, in general face? I don't think so because I think their positions are so unique. I mean, there's only, you know, one queen at a time and it is such a demanding position that I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, well, and I'm just thinking of the the expectations that that are put upon them versus what they want to be versus what they're sort of told they need to be. Right. I think for the queens, they're never really given that option to explore an idea of what they want, if that makes sense. And I think for the book with Princess Louise, that's an issue that kind of that comes up in the book is that because they're the children of the queen and because they are you know, in that circle, but not, you know, that there, she's never, I mean, Princess Louise is never going to be queen. So she has that chance to really explore a life outside of the royal family. She may not be able to live it to her fullest or the way she wants to, but she has the chance to explore it. I think for Queen Victoria and Queen Elizabeth and those figures, I don't think they're ever given that option. I think it just, it's never entertained uh, because that was something in Queen Victoria's journals 
you never see her talk about being anything else than queen. I think the one brief time I saw something like that was where she sort of mentions that she and Albert could have been very good artists if she had been queen. But in all of the writings I read, all the journals, all the letters, I never got a sense that she didn't want to be queen or that for her there was that kind of conflict. Because um, even her relationship with Albert, I mean, she made it pretty clear to him that she was queen and that he was, you know, there to help her. So I, so I think for them, they're just never given that option. Whereas their children, I think it's much more of a struggle for them because they do see a different life and a different path and a different chance, but they're not allowed to pursue it. Yeah, no, I, that's, that's really interesting um, just to have grown up with that mentality and it's just not even seeing it as an option. You, you talked about reading her, you know, her, her writing and in the, the novel, you do include some historical letters and editorials. Mm-hmm. Um, was that just as from the element, you know, from the viewpoint of craft, what, do you think that was a gamble to include some of those primary source documents? And, and how are you, how did you manage to weave them into the story? What I tried to do was find quotes that basically, so it's usually at the beginning of every chapter or sort of the scene breaks. And I tried to find quotes from letters and journals that address whatever I was getting ready to write about in that next chapter. So for instance, when she's talking about her art, she has, there's quotes from her um, brother, Bertie, who went on to become King Edward about her work and about her tutors and stuff like that. So I tried to always have it referenced almost to set the theme of what that chapter was going to be and to see in their own words what they thought of whatever was going on. And also I did it to kind of say, yes, this happened. Yes, this is fiction. And this is an incredibly fictionalized version of her life. But a lot of the details are real. And so the letters were a way of kind of also saying, yes, this is real. And here's here's kind of the proof. Uh, uh, and this is where this came from. And I think it's just fun to see, you know, the real life characters talk about the things that you've fictionalized. And I think it just adds another dimension to the story and helps to kind of humanize them as well, that it's these aren't just you know, made up people. These people existed and this is their life and and they talk about the things that were important to them at the time. And I think it's fun to kind of give that little glimpse in, in you know, the, the, the factual glimpse in, in this fictional story. Well, on the, on the other side of things, is there sort of a fictional line you won't cross as far as dramatizing some of the people and events? Not really. Uh, with jo- with Bo- Joseph Edgar Bohm, I had that I had to take a lot of creative license with because his papers were all destroyed after his death. No one knows why. Some people think it was to protect um, his relationship with Louise. And so for to be able to kind of discover his character was a lot harder than um, even Louise's or Queen Victoria's or a lot of the other characters. So with him, I had to take a lot of artistic license because there just wasn't the source material. There, there was a little bit. He was very good friends with Whistler. And if you go online, I believe it's the University of Glasgow, has 
Whistler's correspondence. And you can see correspondence between Whistler and Bohm and vice versa. And so you got some flashes of his character there, but not the in-depth look into it that I got with more of the letters between Louise and her siblings or Louise and her mom. And even to be honest with you there, because there is some controversy surrounding Louise's life, some of her letters are not as, uh, there's, there's just not as many of them as there are with some of her other siblings or things like that. So even at times kind of pulling her character out of the past was, was a little bit challenging. Um, and so, yeah, you got to take liberties because in the end it is fiction and it is the story that you're telling and you have to be true to your characters as much as you have to be true to the real life person. Hey, historical fiction lovers, this is Colin Mustful, and today I want to tell you about our virtual panel series called What's New in Historical Fiction. If you enjoy hearing from authors on the podcast, I think you'll really enjoy the virtual panel series. Hosted on Crowdcast, What's New in Historical Fiction features historical novelists with new and upcoming titles. As a moderator, I get to ask authors about their books, the inspiration for their work, and about their writing process. Those that attend live can also ask questions of the panelists, while also learning about the newest historical fiction titles. All of the events are recorded and available to watch on replay. To watch previous panels and to register for upcoming panels, just go to crowdcast.io slash history through fiction. That's crowdcast.io slash history through fiction. I hope you'll check it out. Now back to the rest of the interview. Can we talk a little bit a little bit about your development as a writer? I think I read that you started as in screenwriting and then yes. you moved to historical romance and now historical fiction. Um, can you talk about that development, what you've learned, and maybe tell us too, you know, what's what are you thinking of another genre next? Well, uh, no, I'm going to stick with historical uh, women's fiction because I, I very much enjoy it. I enjoy, you know, all the different time periods and the ability to look at these stories and and think, wow, this is a really interesting person that maybe people aren't that familiar with um, and, you know, bringing their story to life. So, yes, the way it started is, is I did originally uh, want to be a screenwriter. I had gone to college for screenwriting. I used to work at a small TV station uh, in San Diego where I wrote, you know, marketing videos and uh, public service announcements and things like that. And then I moved to Los Angeles and I, I worked in the industry. I worked at Sony Pictures and I worked at the Screen Actors Guild. And during that time, you know, I was continuing to pursue screenwriting, but it's an incredibly competitive, uh, you know, business. And so I wasn't having a whole lot of success in, in that writing genre. And so I was sitting around one day and I was reading a romance, a historical romance, and I remember thinking, gosh, I could write one of these. 
And so I did. And so it was an interesting changeover to go from screenwriting to narrative writing, because in screenwriting, the story structure is is the same. The three-act structure and, and the way you develop characters is the same. But the way you move them through the scenes and how much description you have to have is obviously very different. And so it took me a little while to learn how to... Um, basically write in a narrative instead of in writing in screenwriting. And so that took a couple of years. And so I, like I said, I, I became published in historical romance. I was with Harlequin Historical. Uh, I think I wrote about 15 books for them, which was great because it teaches you how to be very disciplined when it, you know, when you've got three books a year due, you have to be very disciplined with your time and, and how you go about things. And so I did that for a number of years, and I wrote in the Regency era, which is, you know, like 1800 to 1820. And I really wanted a chance to explore different time periods. And so I decided to make the change to historical fiction, and that's when I wrote The the Other Windsor Girl, which is the Princess Margaret story, and, that, and it went from there. And so I'm going to stick with the historical fiction, just because there's so many different time periods. I mean, as, as of right now, I've been able to write, you know, from 1949 to 1959, 1939, 1889, you know, just to be able to explore all these different time periods and then just different types of stories. Um, not always, I mean, there's, I, there's romantic elements in my stories, but I'm no, no longer sort of limited to it just being the romance. I can explore these larger themes of, you know, the conflict between duty and, and, you know, the role you're born into and the role you want to um, take on instead. And so, so I'm going to stick with this. I've, I've been really enjoying it. Like I said before, if you, you don't like research and history, you know, this isn't, this isn't it, but I love history and I love research. So I love being able to combine the two. That's great. Um, can you, can you go into a little more detail about maybe some setbacks? I know you said it was a bit of a transition from screenwriting to historical mm-hmm. romance. Um, was there any point where, you thought maybe you made a wrong choice or that it took longer than you thought it would or or how's that process been for you the screenwriting was very difficult uh it is such a a smaller the opportunities are so much smaller there that that was yeah that was a bit of a setback because i you know gone to la and i had a couple of small like eh, kind of almost there and then it wouldn't happen and i also found that as a community, there wasn't so much a writer's community for screenwriters. When it comes to writing fiction, and there are, I think, a lot more opportunities for that camaraderie uh, with other writers and things like that because it is a bigger pool. And so I don't think people feel as um, protective of whatever progress they've made. And, and so that was something that was really neat was finding out that you know people were very helpful in regards to uh, helping me learn how to write and, and opportunities or just being able to commiserate. Uh, it did take a while to get from my first book to, because my first book with historical romance was with a very small publisher that doesn't even exist anymore. And and then after that was a couple with us, another small publisher that Amazon bought out. Um, and this was years ago. And and then there was a quiet time for a few years while I was submitting to Harlequin Historical. Once I got in with Harlequin Historical, it was a, it was very steady work, and um, and 
And then at the t that time, the industry was also changing, especially for romance, with the rise of self-publishing and a lot of the publishers, you know, the number of publishing houses sort of reducing. Um, it, it was a challenging time trying to kind of make headway in romance as well. And to, and the, all the things you suddenly had to learn, um, because not only do you have to learn how to write, but you have to learn how to do marketing and publicity. And then with the rise of self-publishing, I had received the rights back to some of my uh, first books. And so I self-published those. And so there's a whole, wow, there's a whole learning curve with all of that as well. And so it's it's been interesting to to follow those developments and to try and keep up. But I feel like a lot of what I learned in regards to marketing and publicity and things like that, that I learned in the trenches of romance have definitely helped me uh, in historical fiction because they're, they're lessons that, that I have continued to use, you know, especially with using social media and things like that. But um, I was pretty, it was pretty steady for a while. It, uh, it actually still is. So I can't complain. <laughs> well, it's, it's still nice to, to hear your your story and uh, and it kind of validates I guess what what everybody has to to go through and you mentioned the learning curve and it's, it's oh, yeah. definitely there oh yeah um so I, I'm curious then uh, do you have a, a strict writing regiment are you disciplined or is every day just kind of different for you no most days I'm disciplined <laughs> I would be lying if I said it was every day uh, when I am in contract on a book um, and I you know I have my deadline. Usually once I'm done with the research, or at least I've done enough research that I can then sit down and write, that's when I'm a, I'm a lot more disciplined. And like I said, that comes from doing romance. Back in the day when you're writing three books a year, you had to, I had to stay on track. But the nice thing about that is I learned, you know, how many words I can write in an hour on a good day and and things like that. And then there's a lot of different things I learned. So one of the things that I do is when I'm really focused and um, doing usually with the first draft, just trying to get it all, because I'm one of these people, I like to write the first draft and it's ugly. And then I like to go back and edit. So I usually write the first draft fairly quickly. And what I, one of the things I do is I'll do 45 minutes on, 15 minutes off. So I'll set my phone timer. I do 45 minutes on. And then if I'm in a groove and I'm going, I'll just keep going. If I can feel it by the end of that 45 minutes, I'm burning out, I'll stop, take a break for 15 minutes, and then come back to it. One of the other things I do is I have a calendar that looks like it's called an appointment book and it breaks the day down by hours. And so what I do is I keep track of my word count on those hours so I can see where I'm at. And I know that if I want to write, you know, a whole entire manuscript by this date, then I have to write X many words a day or X many words in a week. And I have to make sure I hit that. And then, you know, this, and you take out the days, obviously that you can't work for whatever reason. And so I keep, I keep track of it so that I can see every day. Okay. Today I wrote 3000 words. Well, that means tomorrow I only have to write 2000 words. So if I need to run some errands or whatever, I can do that. But if like today I only wrote a thousand words, that means I got to write 4,000 tomorrow. That means tomorrow I got to sit down and really, you know, knock it out of the park. So it's, it's very helpful to keep track of it in that regard. Once I get into the editing, um, then I ease up a little bit more because that's the part where you're, you have more of a feel for the story and you're sort of 
searching and feeling for the emotional highs and lows and the tensions and when things need to come in and when they, you know, the tweaking and how people sound and stuff like that. And so that's a little less regimented in that I don't usually keep track of my word count. But, um, but yeah, you have to, you have to be disciplined to stay on track in order to make sure you're hitting the deadlines. And, and then I'm glad for those lessons when I did romance that I learned because my last book, The Last Debutantes, that book was due in June of 2020. And uh, originally at the beginning of March of 2020, I had my whole entire writing schedule mapped out. And, you know, we all know what happened at that time. And so while the world was going crazy, the discipline that I've learned, you know, back from when I did romance, uh, really got me through because, you know, I had to, I stayed in my routine every day, came down and sat at the times I normally sat, had my, my little, you know, appointment book thing so I could keep track of things and it really helped. So that's something I always recommend to aspiring writers is, and, and, and is to find your routine and nurture it because when the world kind of goes crazy, that routine will get you through and get you to your due date on time. Well, I think that's great advice. And yeah, you're definitely quite disciplined, I would say, as far Most as days. <laughs> your routine. I, I won't lie. There are certain days where, especially if the story's not going well, where suddenly cleaning your house is way more interesting than uh, actually sitting down and writing. But the nice thing about being able to know at this point how many words I can write and how fast is that I, I also kind of know how much wiggle room I have. And that's one of the other things I really like about writing historical fiction is because I, I usually, my deadlines are usually a year off now. So I have a little bit of wiggle room, you know, for one life. And then two for those days where I'm just not that on my game. And it happens. It just, you know, it happens to everybody. Well, honestly, when you were describing that, I was thinking of when I run marathons, because, you know, if I have a set time of 345 that I want to get in, I know that I have to run each mile in I don't know, 8.50. Mm-hmm. So I'll run one mile in 8.52. So I know, okay, next mile I have to run in 8.48. Right. And it just keeps going back and forth like that every time you cross a mile marker. Exactly. But it's good. It's a, it's good to know because it reduces your stress too, which is helpful. Um, because there's always patches where the story's not going correctly. And you know you need to be writing X many words a day, but they're just not coming but a lot of times getting the muse to sort of speak to you again is all about just sitting down and going through the motions. Because uh, people talk about that, you know, with writer's block and, and you know, the way you deal with that is you sit down every day and you write something. doesn't matter how ugly it is. doesn't matter how little it is. Because at some point in that process, things will start to kick in. You, you can't wait for the inspiration. You have to sort of sit down, get your groove and let it kind of flow. Well, before um, I end the interview, I, I did want to ask your thoughts on Prince Harry and Meghan Markle. Um, do you find yourself maybe being able to empathize a little bit more with them, having uh, written books about Louise and Margaret? Um, what, what do you think that what, what, what they're going through? I definitely can see and understand that conflict between the duty you're born to and the life you want to live instead. Because I think that is something that they and Princess Diana as well really had to struggle with. And I think it's something that hasn't changed in, you know, the hundred plus years since Queen Victoria and the 
30 plus years since, or no, or however many years um, with Princess Margaret, is that that conflict between duty and, you know, to this institution that they didn't ask to be born into, and yet, you know, are very much as a family uphold, and what they want to do. I just, I think the difference now is there's that freedom. One of the things I always used to say with Princess Margaret is that had she been born, let's say in the seventies, she could have had a career. She could have done so much more. And a lot of the problems that she had would not have existed, but she unfortunately was, you know, not that born much earlier. And so what happened is she just didn't have those opportunities and nobody knew what to do with her. So she wanted this freedom and she wanted this life, but it wasn't something that was done then. And so I think for the modern royals, they have more of those opportunities, such as, you know, Harry marrying a very, you know, Megan, a commoner. Um, And those were options that were definitely not... Because one of the things with uh, Princess Louise is she didn't want to marry a foreign prince. And all her sisters, uh, her older sisters had. And at the time, the English people were very unhappy about seeing their dowries and things like that leave the country. Plus, this, you know, the sisters, their countries got into war. It was a lot of problems. And so just her choosing to marry, even though he's the Duke of Argyle's son, just making that decision was just wow, revolutionary at the time. Now we don't even really blink when, you know, Prince William marries a commoner or Prince Harry marries a commoner. But at the time that was just shocking. So I think there's a lot of the same old conflicts between duty and their life, but I also think the modern royals have so many more freedoms than any of their ancestors could have ever enjoyed. So have you... Uh, picked out your next story? Um, Have you been reading some nonfiction books um, that you can share with us? I have. I'm, I'm right now I'm working on proposals. And so I'm going through and, and one of the things that I'm looking at, I don't know if this one will happen, but Prince Leopold, who was Princess Louise's younger brother, he was a hemophiliac. He attended Oxford for a while. And during that time, he got to know Alice Little, who is who was, as a young girl, the inspiration for Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland. And there are rumors that he had a relationship with her. And so that's one of the things I've been researching um, with the potential of it becoming a story. Because again, it's that conflict between, you know, as a prince, he doesn't have that freedom to be in a relationship with a commoner. And then Alice Little, as a woman at that time, even though she was at Oxford. Her father was the Dean of Christ Church College. Even though she's there at Oxford, because she's a woman at that time, she cannot take a degree. And she also has to stay very separate of all the undergrads or, you know, the the students. So she's there, but she's not. And so she doesn't have that freedom to pursue, you know, her academic pursuits and her interests. And so uh, I think that's very interesting about the two of them and that conflict again between duty and person, personal life. Yeah, that definitely sounds fascinating and, and interesting that they're, they're both lacking those, those freedoms and mm-hmm. still finding a way to, to connect. Yes. Well, Georgie, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. I'm really glad that I could have you on the uh, podcast. 
Thank you so much for having me. I very much enjoyed it. Just a second. Okay. All right. I've got the uh, the right microphone picked. I, I was doing it. It had the desktop mic, which doesn't, the quality is just not quite as good. Right. But um, I just asked the one question, so that should be fine. Um, so I'll try to make the sound natural. I'll just <laughs> cut and split. If you want, I can start over. I don't mind. No, that was good. <laughs>